Should I interest you in a stamp? Yeah, give me a stamp. Oh. No, give me a purple one. Oh, I'm sorry we haven't any purple ones. I could uh, paint one for you. I don't want a painted one. person hasn't got any rights in this country anymore. The government even tells you what color stamps you gotta buy. from an empty theater showing the new Buzz Lightyear movie. This is the award-winning stamp show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of flattery. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Albert. And today, Mark, you have something. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the USPS marketing failures. Um, <laughs> Just to uh, just to recap some of the uh, some of the uh, uh, ones that uh, that come to mind, uh, like spending millions of dollars to team up with cyclist Lance Armstrong, uh, who ultimately disgraced himself and the USPS by cheating in the sport. Um, which I, I don't really blame USPS for that, but uh, but yeah, that was a that was a failure. Uh, but one you could Actually, definitely yeah. Oh, but hold on. Uh -huh. First of all, they didn't print any stamps for it. No, but they printed priority mail envelopes with Lance Armstrong on it, those priority mail envelopes are valuable. Yeah. <laughs> they are collector's items because it has Lance Armstrong on it. Mint, you know, not used. If it has a stamp on it and was used, it's actually worth much more, obviously, because then it's a stamp collector thing. But from a marketing standpoint, yes, it was a failure, but philatelically they're pretty cool yeah <laughs> uh another one that was a uh, was a big fail was honoring poet maya angelo on the stamp as part of the black heritage series which they prominently featured a quote that she didn't write yep that was we discussed that one yeah plus maya angelou to honor her you know it it really makes every young girl want to grow up and be a prostitute <laughs> Uh, the most recent failure is commemorating Title IX uh, with the stamp at the very moment when women's sports records are being shattered by biological males. Oh, see, hold, hold, hold. I'm sorry, we're, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. With men competing in women's sports, it guarantees the success of women's sports. Hmm. I mean, imagine the NFL as a women's football league, but nothing changes. Okay, so you have the NFL exactly as it is right now, but it's a woman's sport. Then we get to com congratulate all the women for, you know, participating in the NFL, even though none of them are there. And uh, society would just be so much better. Hmm. I mean, don't you agree? Yeah, but I think the moment you introduce a 240-pound linebacker that's a biological male identifying as female... 
that starts destroying everyone else on the field. No, it wouldn't, though. It becomes watchable. Because every single member of every single NFL team, they just identify as non-sex. They say, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman. And all of a sudden, Title IX preserves the sport. And we solve a major, major issue that will bring this country to its knees if it isn't solved. That being if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, let me let me talk about the most recent failure uh, from the USPS, which is uh, teaming up with Disney to produce the Buzz Lightyear stamp <sighs> that was announced the day the movie was released. Okay, now there's two problems here. First, they didn't have the stamps. They won't be ready for sale until August, well after the movie leaves the theaters. And second, the movie's bombing at the box office, reportedly because they didn't use Tim Allen as the voice for Buzz, and include scenes that continue to push their not-so-secret agenda. What's their not-so-secret agenda? Uh, it's, it's on YouTube. You'll have to look it up. But, oh, uh, no. Does it have anything so to do with Title IX? Uh, no, it does not. Okay, because like I said, if, if every NFL player identifies as a bit better if every single NFL player identifies as a woman our country all the problems would be solved yep. every single one except for Putin we'd still have that problem right but yeah. every other problem would gas be prices will still be high yeah but you know gas prices would be high but we'd be happy to pay it because our NFL players would all be trans hmm. and trans honestly, is one of my favorite cars. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna posit an alternative. Oh, okay, okay. Now get ready for this because if I was a younger man, I would be I would be uh, pushing this myself at uh, L'Enfant Plaza. Younger, you and already can't younger, drink, right? Imagine if they had instead teamed up with the makers of Top Gun Maverick and oh. introduced a pane of Navy fighter plane stamps that were immediately available for sale at every theater the very day the movie was released, along with a limited edition USPS appreciation print, similar to the ones produced by Fish and Wildlife for duck stamps. And you could only get the print at theaters by buying a pane of the stamps along with your ticket to the movie. Now tell me that wouldn't have made money for both USPS and, and, the, and the makers of Maverick. I don't know where that came from. But that's a genius idea. <laughs> I mean, because you, you knew, they everybody knew that Maverick was going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Buzz Lightyear, I mean, you know, Buzz Lightyear, it's, like, you know, it's, yeah, it's been done. Movie. It's a kid's in a movie. And, uh, wow. But, again, is the USPS meant to be that commercial? That's one of the problems. The answer, obviously, is yes, because they proved that they are, because they did Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, they did a Buzz Lightyear so, That's not available for the sale. <laughs> <laughs> over, over the past 30 years, they've done almost every Disney film as a form of a stamp. And, and, every, and, and a lot of Disney ones. ownerships, yeah, Disney properties. Simps, Simpsons uh, was one of the ones that notoriously, it didn't fail, because they still sold a lot of stamps. But they were planning on, what, 40 million being sold, and they only sold like 20 million, which 20 million is still an insane number. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I am totally wrong. I dropped a zero. Yeah. <laughs> it was 
400 million and 200 million. And um, they ended up burning, I think, like 45% of the issue as an unsold. Yeah, but 200 million is not a failure. No, that's what I'm saying is, but again, they anticipated 400 million. And I have a funny feeling that the Simpsons creators got some pay for it. So maybe they needed to sell 400 million to make a bunch of money and they only sold 200 million. So we're never going to know what the accounting on it is because, you know, it's private. But um, it's so hard to guess what people are going to like. But 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 for every Disney movie that they promote as a stamp, isn't the USPS paying Disney something? I oh, gotta, I guarantee I, it. I have to think that they're paying them substantial royalties. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Even when they use a picture of the Statue of Liberty, they end up paying somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, it's because they used the wrong Statue of Liberty instead yeah, of using the one the, in Vegas. Yeah, <laughs> they used the one here in Vegas. And so the person said, that's not the Statue of Liberty. That's my interpretation of the Statue of Liberty. And you can tell because of these different, you know, the look of her face and everything like that. Right. And uh, he sued and he got a bunch of money. Yep, he won. Yeah. And then I'll, at last but not least, I'll, I'll, I'll press on a, a continuing failure, which I did talk about in a previous podcast and even wrote the Postmaster General and never got a response. But uh, as Well, you stand know, by your mailbox. I'm sure he's uh, yeah. going to handwrite you a letter. As, as you know, the USPS publishes the quarterly USA Philatelic magazine, which shows all the new issues available in all the various formats. And they state in the magazine that you can order online, but you actually can't. There are certain products, such as the strips of 25 of the coil issues, that you can only order by phone speaking to an actual agent, which is the costliest method for the USPS to sell stamps. Even if you know the item number, when you type it into USPS.com, it shows that there's no match for any product. Yep. I've gone through this myself. So that's an unbelievable continuing failure. And so uh, I think anybody in, in that works for um, for marketing in USPS should... Um, commit uh, ritual suicide. <laughs> and you'll provide them with the uh, uh, with the knife, right? right. You know, I, I know th there's a reason why the USPS doesn't retweet us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they used to in the beginning. And then uh, somebody said, uh, you know what these jokers on Step Show here today are saying about the UPS? <laughs> and said, oh, I guess we uh, should uh, stop uh, retweeting their stuff. Anyway, uh, there's, you know, I support the post office with everything I can. Just like you would, just like I'm sure Joe Biden supports Hunter Biden. But you've got. The smartest organization I know. The dumbest things going on in what should be the smartest company that should be going on. Not the least of which. Honestly, I, we were talking about it today at lunch. If you're in Las Vegas on Tuesday, 1130 at the South Point Buffet, counterfeits are just going to wreck a lot of part, many parts of stamp collecting, not the least of which is the value of discount postage and the value of people's collections. Because like we were talking today, you know, a person was talking about buying postage, discount postage, because the postal rates just went up, uh, at 50% a face. And I said, 
you know, why buy discount postage at 50% of face when you can buy actual peel and stick forever stamps? Freshly minted from China for half price and the post office doesn't care. Yeah. And they should care. And so we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's interesting about Buzz. I was totally unaware of any Buzz Lightyear issue coming out. Yep. How did they market it? It's, uh, well, I, I don't know that they marketed it at all, really. I mean, they announced it uh, when the when the uh, movie opened. But, well, you well, know, we who, are, who saw that? We are not in the demographic group for people who are going to go see Buzz Lightyear. Right. So... But, but, I mean, it's not like they didn't know the movie was coming out. And to not have the stamps for sale at the time that they announced it, I mean, that's just, uh, that's criminally do they have insane. A, do they have a reason for it? Because that is an obvious shortfall, you know, issuing it way after the fact. Yeah. But on the other side, Buzz Lightyear looks like it's not, I don't know if it's not going to be successful or not, you know. Uh, whether it's going to crash and burn. So far, they're losing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. I, uh, my understanding is that um, it's going to get nowhere near the cost of of uh, producing it. Well, hold on here. But Disney films have the one the one advantage about a Disney film is is that when it comes out, when it comes out for uh, um, if you want to buy it for your for your kid on uh, uh, for Christmas, that they make it back on that. Right. Except that, um, and by showing it on their channel on Disney Plus, you know you'll be able to offset X millions of dollars yeah, per that, showing. That, that's why I'm not sure that people will buy it because if they can get it on Disney Plus, that's you know basically free. Um, so why you know why pay the extra to buy it? One, plus, one reason that the Top Gun Maverick film has made so much money is Tom Cruise insisted that that none that that that, that the movie would get a live theater release and not be released to any streaming service for for at least six months. And he's getting well rewarded since he's now, they, that movie's grossed over a billion dollars. Yeah, his first billion dollar movie, sure. Yeah. What's the name of the movie? Because I'm on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Uh, Toy Story 5 I think or something? I think, it's, I think it's called Buzz Lightyear. Oh, really? Or just, or just Lightyear. I forget what it was. Well, I typed in Buzz and nothing showed up. Lightyear. Okay, I got Lightyear. There's a movie here. Is it Chris Evans? Yes. Yeah, yeah they used Chris Evans as the voice instead of Tim Allen. Oh. Which which was already going to get a lot of people upset. Oh, it's like a live action. It's not... A, it, no, it's animated. Oh, it's animated? Okay. Yeah. It's the prequel. Well, right now on Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter is at 75%. The audience is at 84 but that tends to be very high in the beginning and drop quickly. So you can't tell that. Generally speaking, audience and tomato meter sort of even out with each other, except in some weird circumstances. What is it grossed? Yeah, it's, it, Rotten Tomatoes has gotten a little bit um, unreliable. It's really the, the, the box office gross is when you start to, to see the... You know what kind of a failure it is. One hundred and twelve million. I bet they have that. I bet they have that. I bet you they, production I bet, costs. Yeah, I yeah. bet they spent more than two hundred million on this movie. Yeah, that'll be interesting. 
Well, just remember, Fantasia was a failure financially, and yet, you know, um, um, that came out in, what, 1946, and they they kept releasing it until it finally did make money. Yep. <laughs> so they can finally keep, re- keep releasing that, and they're going to have figurines and everything else. Well, if they redub the voice with Tim Allen <laughs> and get rid of the not-so-secret agenda... They, uh, they I have no I, I have no idea what the secret agenda is that you're talking about. Oh, D- Disney for many of the most recent TV shows, Disney Channel shows plus movies, has had a very feminist agenda. How could Buzz Lightyear be a, f- a feminist agenda? Uh, we I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. I mean, he's a guy. <laughs> there's a. Uh, I don't know. Is there a gay kiss in the movie or there something? There is a gay kiss in the movie, and there's a uh, <laughs> a trans. There's movie. a uh, reporter named I think Chris Rufo that um, that uh, released a um, uh, uh, internal communications in Disney released it to the public, and uh, and it showed uh, prominent Disney um, uh, creators uh, bragging about the fact that they introduced uh, um, that they readily introduced queer. Um, Themes in their in their oh, yeah. movies, and they and they they the insert Kath- them Kathleen everywhere Kennedy. they can. Yeah, Kathleen Kennedy, who is one of the uh, is the she's p- Lucasfilm. Yeah, yeah, she actively puts female stuff. I don't know. You know, you can talk about whether. Uh, um, oh God, I forget the girl's uh, name uh, out of Star uh, Ray. Wars. Ray, <laughs> whether Ray was like. Ex Machina, or it, whether she was a uh, Mary Sue or whatever. The uh-huh. fact is, is that when you have an agenda and you try to shoehorn it in, you do it at the detriment of the plot because pe- it, stories have to make sense for you to get involved in them. And it doesn't, you can go ahead and have strong female characters. I mean, Game of Thrones has them all over the place, but they fit into the plot. Right. You know, the, the head of one of the houses, I'm on season six, uh, everybody, I've just started watching it, so, uh, but season six, you know, they have this 10-year-old girl who's this head of the house, and she's speaking really strongly to everybody, and it's like, that fits. You know, if she turns around and, kisses some other woman or says, you know, I'm not really a girl, I'm a trans man or something like that, then, you know, it all falls apart. But, you know, it totally fits. Um, We'll see what happens. But I think that getting back to stamps, I think that one of the big problems is when you put politics, any political view whatsoever, and Title IX, stuff like that, is all political views. You're, half the people are going to be happy, and half the people are going to be angry. So you lose half the market. doesn't matter what you say. If you said, I'm against Title IX, you'd lose half the market. You, lose, I'm, you say, I'm for Title IX, you lose half the market. You put Buzz Lightyear, you're not going to lose any market, unless you, it's a crappy movie. Right. And that's one of the problems that I've seen with a lot of things, and, you know, in my opinion... The culmination of it was the stamp for Japanese Americans who fought in World War II, and they didn't even specify Japanese Americans who fought for America in World War II, because there are plenty of Japanese Americans who fought for the Japanese. There's a very famous story, like I've already shared, 
of a guy who was on a ship who got bombed by the Americans. He was in the water watching the American airplanes that just sunk his ship flying overhead, bombing Iwo Jima. He was at Iwo Jima. He was a Japanese-American fighting for the Japanese. Does this stamp commemorate him? It shouldn't, but the stamp isn't clear. I mean, yeah. they, it was, and I'm sorry, what was the number of the unit? 442nd. 442nd. I kept saying 142nd. If they would have had commemorating the 442nd. Like have the patch or something like that? Have a patch or something. Or just have the person wearing an American uniform as opposed to a washed out, unidentifiable uniform. You know, it says go for broke. Wonder if it said go for broke 442nd uh, infantry unit. That would be fantastic. But they couldn't even do that. And that's why I ride on this stamp. Because this stamp was a problem that could have been fixed with adding, you know, literally like maybe one or two words to it. Or, yeah. or a word and a number. And that's that seems to be a problem with a lot of the of the latest stamps commemorating people, where you don't even know what you know why they're commemorating. Oh yeah, well we've talked about that art all the time. I've I've had it for many years. A lot of these people people on the regular issues over the years. I don't know who they are. I have to I have to go read about them when they're on a stamp. Well, yeah. but they'll say that's a good thing. Now you're reading about them. Right, but, but I mean, I, yeah, but you but have I to have a reason to go read about. Yeah, exactly. It's like you, you, there was a recent stamp on the a Black Heritage of a woman who was a sculptor, and she did amazing stuff. But they didn't show you know any of her work. They just put her name and her picture, and you have no idea she was a sculptor. You had no idea she's an artist. And I remember the Canadian Black History, where it showed the uh, uh, a black. Um, I'm not sure whether he was a naval officer or not, but he was in the Hudson Bay Company. He like cruised around, and he he was shown there with his uh, Western hat and with the feather out of it. He looked like Errol Flynn. And in the back, you had a ship, and you go, "This guy, I have his name. It's right here on the stamp. I'm going to look it up because this is interesting." Right. But you have a person. Oh well, um, who was the uh, writer? Uh, oh, she uh, she wrote about the uh, people in the ice or in the snow, and the big thing was that the people they chose their sex every day or every week or something. They could change between sexes. Anyway, um, God, it, it's the uh, one dollar and five cent stamp. I forget who it was. That, that was an airmail stamp. It's uh, anyway, so they show a picture of like this party walking through the ice in the background. And then it showed a picture of what turned out to be her, right? It looked like a him. It looked it looked like it didn't have really any sex to it. So, you know, the background in my mind, Arctic explorers tend to be men. I know they can be women, sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if it was a woman, you know, it'd be cool. Arctic explorer had nothing to do with Arctic Explorer. She was, an, she was a writer, and I had no idea from the stamp that she was a writer. Yeah. 
and Albert's looking it up. He needed to just shrug, so he obviously didn't find it. Somebody will, hey, we get a lot of emails for Stamp Show here today. Somebody will say, ah, Kaz, you're an idiot. It's uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm an idiot. I apologize. All I can say is I've, there are a number of stamps I've had to look up in, on Wikipedia and find out exactly who they were or what they did. Yeah. And a, a lot of them are sort of, um, I'm not going to say they're paid, but, you know, it's like they put out a public radio stamp, and they couldn't put out a public radio stamp because I think they already did. So they put out a stamp for some a person, some lady who was black, who was working on it, and it's like, well, what did she do? And it's like, everything was, she was the first woman to do that, and everybody goes, no, she wasn't. Uh, she was the first black woman to do this, and no, she wasn't. She was the first black woman to do this under these specific circumstances. It's like, yeah, okay, there it fits. But it's like, if you have to get that low, you know, why not show the first black woman broadcaster on PBS? But they didn't. Glenn Eiffel. Glenn Eiffel, yeah. Gwen? Gwen. Gwen Eiffel. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of people who did first before her, but she did this thing that, you know, if you narrow down the definition as much as you can, then she was the first to do it. And it was a tribute to PBS. More than, I think, Glenn Eiffel. Gwen Eiffel. And, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do, which... Brings us to an item that you were showing us today at lunch, um, the Citizens. Yeah, Citizens Stamp Advisory Committee. There was a, uh, I bought an estate that included um, uh, items from uh, uh, Jim Bilbray, who was a uh, congressman for Nevada and also uh, a member of the Citizens Stamp Advisory Committee. And I had a, a sort of a, a pamphlet or something that was produced by USPS like that was commemorating the 50th anniversary presentation of book. Yeah, presentation in a really neat book. box too. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it showed all the stamps that, um, uh, and it had examples of the stamps that were that were created because of the of CSAC. And it's interesting because um, all the stamps, and it went up to what 1992, uh, 2007, because oh, it yeah, was 50 year. Oh, okay, but it seemed like. None of them were really political. None of them were agenda-driven. They were all just like, this happened 100 years ago. Look at this. And the Citizens Advisory Committee, I think that's what's missing to their design of a lot of stamps. You know, if they got more power, you would have, in my opinion, better-looking stamps because the stamps they produced, you know, over the last 50 years before that were pretty good. Yeah. So that's just my opinion. I wish I was on the, uh, the Citizens Advisory, but after the first meeting, they kicked me off. <laughs> but yeah, but there are a lot of notable names on the uh, Citizens Stamp Advisory Committee over the years. Oh, yeah. Um, Mr. Hotringer. Yeah. He was, he was there forever. Ernest Borgnine, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who else? Any other name drops? Uh, there is a Posner from New York, philatelist. Really? Yep. He was on his... Uh, I forget the first name, but it was, uh, I think it was probably an elder Posner. Oh, okay. So it wasn't Bobby or right, yeah. Gary. Oh, yeah. okay. Shout out to you guys. Uh, oh, interesting. Well, I have a couple items. I have two items. These both went in a seagull sale. And the first one I'll cover because it's Romanian 
and uh, I had no clue this existed. And so let me share it with people. It was, um, if you want to look it up, it's uh, lot number 194 of the June 28th sale of Siegel. It's a sheet of Romanian stamps, and they're overprinted. And it's uh, number, it's the 1930, and it's listed as C8 for the normal. And what it was is they were in printing this sheet, and the somehow sheet broke. You know, two of the stamps fell out of the sheet. So when they fed it back in, they had to mount the stamps, tape them back into place. And when they taped them back into place, they taped them in upside down. So uh, I don't know whether, you know, how hard it's, I can see, you know, it's a blue bordered stamp. Go look at it. It's not real obvious which way is up and which way is down, but it's obvious enough where somebody shouldn't have done it. But anyway, two stamps were put back into the sheet upside down. And so they have inverted overprints. Whereas in actuality, the stamps are inverted, not, <laughs> not, not I mean, it, it's funny because pull it up because you have a full sheet and then you have two stamps that are literally just upside down inside of the sheet. They weren't printed that way or anything. They fell out and were taped back in again. And, uh, a friend, Mark in Alaska, shout out to Mark. I know he's a listener of the podcast. Uh, he purchased it because like we were talking when you see something that you've never seen before, and it's something that comes up oh, once every lifetime, you know, once every three or four decades, you kind of got to buy it. <laughs> yeah. But this is one that's just like, the story behind it is so weird. And uh, so that's one thing. In the same sale, this is something that I never knew, and Albert was talking at lunch and he knows far more about it than I do. So I'm going to ask him, Albert. Well, he's talking about a set of the uh, 1895 um, regular issues that were in perfect. There was a set of blocks in the sale um, and it was in Siegel uh, sale number 1224, lot 171 and was described as a set of 264A to 278A blocks. Um, since this sale, they've renumbered them. They're now called, they're now considered proofs. They're, called, they're considered P5 proofs. But it says, uh, but, but in the description, they described exactly how these existed. So in the Lester Brookman 19th Century Stamps in the United States, Volume 3, pages 128 through 129, is a complete account of the origin of the 1895 imperforates. Um, quoted from a uh, column written by George B. Sloan. Um, excerpts are, at the time they appeared, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing had, but a short time previously, taken over the stamp printing contract from the American Banknote Company and were unfamiliar with and inexperienced in the quantity production of postage stamps. Gilbert E. Jones, one of the owners of the New York Times, rendered the Bureau invaluable technical advice and assistance in the organization of their facilities, and the Bureau desired to reward him in some way for his services. 
Mr. Jones was a well-known collector interested only in stamps and in, in imperfect pairs. And when the subject was broached, he suggested that while he desired no recompense, if the Bureau could give him an imperfect pair or a block of each of the stamps, then in current use for his collection, he would feel more than amply repaid. Sloan then explains that the Bureau was restricted from presenting him with stamps from stock, but they did allow him to buy regular perforated stamps on sale at the post office and exchange them for the imperforates. Although the Scott Catalog at first did not recognize the imperforates as regularly issued stamps, from 1916 on they inserted a statement, all denominations of this issue exist in perforate but were not regularly issued in that condition. Um, so that described them and then a number of years later in the 2000s they changed them. They, act, they actually, it actually got an A in the, in the 70s and then um, um, Sometime in the sometime in the in the 2010s, they changed them from uh, from uh, from being 264A to 278A. They're now called uh, 264P5 and two, to through 278P5. And these are called proofs, but they're not proof impressions. No, nope. they're normal run stamps on normal run stamp paper with normal gum, but they call them proofs because. Because they were because they were never they were never regularly issued yeah. like like true errors, and so, so the Scott Kellogg says plate proof on stamp paper and gummed, and it's priced by the pair. So they so they did everything but perforate the stamp. Correct. So is this the uh, is this the original gum that's really crappy looking that the? Um, no, these are eighteen ninety five. So oh, okay. it's actually, actually nice gum. There, there is a, there is an. Ex why don't, why don't you tell people a little bit about the crappy gum so that people can the, well, know what you're talking about? Well, in eighteen, so the American Banknote Company had the contract to produce these stamps originally, the regular issues, and so they produced the no triangles issue between eighteen ninety and ninety one, and then um, the bureau decided that they wanted. So the the last the last stamps that the American Banknote Company printed were the Columbian issue, eighteen ninety two and eighteen ninety three. So they needed to produce some more regular issues, but the Bureau wanted to do it. So whenever, so the plates had been turned over to the Post Office Department. So the Post Office Department turned, off, uh, turned over the plates to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and that's why they put the, the little triangles in the, in the upper corners, upper left and upper right corners. But when they printed them, they had no idea how to, how to print them in a mass quantity. And so they had tremendous problems with ink, with the gum, with the perforations, and one of and the the 1894 issues are printed on imperfect paper, and the paper that they used was not always the best quality, and so you had you had post offices writing um, writing back to the postmaster general saying that the sheets were falling apart, uh, that you couldn't separate them because the perforations weren't fully punched out, and that's why they came out they. That's one of the reasons why, with the help of Mr. <laughs> Mr. Jones, he found a better quality paper that was that uh, that was watermark, double line watermarked, and he also found better quality gum, and uh, he helped with. That's why they came out with an 1895 printing, which solved most of their problems, and that's why he was rewarded with these stamps, which he basically traded. He traded he traded regular stamps at face value for the imperforates. No, he, he was paid 
in imperforates, but they said, can you do a uh, transaction in the meantime well, the trans- to cover us for... Well, the transaction <laughs> was there was no no financial... Tra- he wasn't actually paid in the sense... He had to give back a, a perforated one to get an imperforate one. Yeah, you, like I said, they were following some abstract interpretation of the rules as opposed to actual rules. But that earlier gum is, uh, is, is a kind of... Uh, uh, been a problem for me because when I see it, I immediately think it's disturbed gum. Oh that, yeah, that's that's a real problem, especially the earliest printings of it, um, and the terrible perforations. And that's one of the ways we determine the difference between the 1894 and 1895 issue, is the gum and the paper. But you have to be aware of it. I mean, there's um, there's a lot of people who won't accept some of those stamps because they, the gum looks like like. Uh, uh, there's very little difference between disturbed gum and, and never hinged on a lot of those issues, especially the two cent pink and uh, some of the some of the first printings of uh, some of the higher values, the three cent, the five cent, the ten cent. And you, you'll get it where where it's where the stamp might have an entire side of blind purse or mm-hmm. two sides of an entire blind purse. So that that's one of the instances where even if the, even though the gum is not pristine. It's not counted against it in grading because that's how they. That's how that's how it comes, and if, right. and there are there are sheets of the 1894 issue around that you can find. They're usually they're usually among the most terrible stamps because they're terribly centered, but they they ex- exist as multiples. If you, I mean, you you find them in, occasionally in auctions as uh, sold as sheets, catalog a lot, but they they bring like sometimes as little as 15 percent of catalog. Very, very interesting. I never knew the story behind it, and uh, it, you know, the the reason why it was brought up with uh, PSE is the fellow called us and said, are you sure these are proofs? And we said, yes, you know, because he, he, he may have been looking at an old catalog or something, he said, because I thought these were imperforated. And it's like, they are what they are. And we kind of follow the catalog because PSE doesn't put out their own catalog. You know, we have to follow the industry standard and argue as much as you want. And I had this argument with another fellow. Uh, They are the industry standard. And so when they put it into proofs, they're proofs. And when they put them in the regular uh, stamp section and just call them imperforated pairs, that's what they are. Well, an, an area that, another area that they did that to, that were they were considered stamps for over 100 years, are the uh, 1861 premier gravures. Oh, yeah. Of which, of which um, some of those values um, are come used. So... Scott number fifty. Scott number fifty-eight is now is now a uh, is now in the in the in the essay essay position, but sixty-two B is exactly the same stamp, and that's and they're known both mint and used. Yeah. Why why is sixty-two still listed? Sixty-two B in B. Sixty-two yeah. B is a ten cent stamp. But I mean, did, but it was used. But it, it was, was actually issued and used. So, so they grabbed the plates and they printed regular issues off them, or did they take stamps that you know they had printed for test purposes and threw them to the post office? Or? They were, they were, they were issued. 
The yeah. 10 cent was issued and 24 cent we know is issued. Yeah, but I'm curious why they were printed. Well, they originally they were originally printed because of uh, to uh, uh, because it, this is a changeover. So, cause well, so there was, they didn't want stamps. They didn't want no. current stamps in the in the hands of Confederate post, postmasters. But it was a design issue in the beginning. They were printed to test them out to see how people liked them and stuff. And all of them went into the essay section, including what is it, sixty five EAF two. Yeah, which I think is like formerly number fifty six or something like that. Right. Yeah, something yeah, like that. It's an affordable stamp. Yeah. And it and it fits in your album. If you have an old album, it fits in the in the album for in number fifty six. Yeah. If you look in an old album, it'll have uh, number sixty fives, and it'll have different colors, and it'll be like pink, and then uh, rose, and then lake, and then red brown, and that lake one is now the essay, and it mm-hmm. was a, considered a normal postage stamp until it wasn't. Right. So it's like the person who played the pregnant woman in Juno is now is a guy. <laughs> you know, it just is. It's irritating to, you know, to yep. say it, but that's that's what happened. Yep. Well, if, especially if you have an old catalog or an old uh, Scott album, you'll, oh, find going pla- you'll find that those places still exist in your album. China Clay. The China Clay paper stamp. It was totally delisted. So anyway, one of the things that I was thinking, um, specimen stamps were never issued. You know, they were specimens. They were either UPU or other memes. But, you know, they were overprinted specimen. And, you know, there's different types of specimens. But, you know, they all go into, into the general specimen category. Well, these could have been considered specimens, except that they're not overprinted specimen. Because these are kind of specimens. They were given to a person as specimens of the issue. So, you know, they're not proofs. Clearly, they're not proofs. They're put in the proof category because there's no other category to put them in. Uh, could you put them in the same uh Group as the sample stamps, the ones that were open at sample. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was thinking. Specimens and samples. Um, I think that this is more in that category, except that all those are overprinted. Right. And, and so since these were not, maybe that's why they don't belong in that. But you know, clearly they are not proofs. They were stuck in the proof section because where else do you put them? So. An interesting stamp. Congratulations to the owner. Uh, interesting story on him. And I know he's a listener also. Um, I hope everybody learned something. And I ask your forgiveness if uh, we got too political in the beginning there. Yeah. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. (laughs) Because you don't put that on the letter. Oh, Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. 
Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this silkcom was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! <laughs> Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.